0: My name is Marshall, I will be teaching on the passage and that Beth just read, as well as the following ones. We have a lot to cover. Uh, we actually will end up reading all of those uh, sections as we make our way through uh, this, uh, this text, but we're going to break up uh, the reading. But let me pray before we look at Matthew 24, and especially Matthew 25. God, we come now to uh, the words of Jesus, his last sermon, and these in many ways are very difficult words to hear, they're motivating words to hear. There's a lot of things going on here. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us clear minds, pure hearts. Lord, I do pray that you would, through the preaching of your word, through the reading of your word, that you would raise the dead, that you would build your church, that you would expand your kingdom. And we pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, as you have uh, seen, read before you, this sermon that I'm about to preach is based on Jesus' sermon, his last sermon, and it's a sermon about... What's a sermon about judgment? Now, uh, you know, kind of things going on in the world, attendance is kind of picking up a little bit. I know that uh, some of the places are uh, on spring break this week, but attendance is up, getting a little crowded in here, so I decided to thin the crowd out a little bit, uh, preach a sermon on judgment. So if I don't see you again... But seriously, during the Lent, we're looking at the the six weeks leading up to Easter, we're looking at the last eight days of Jesus' life. Eight days, eight days that changed the world. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry, where he rides on a donkey into Jerusalem all the way to the gates of the temple. He goes into the temple, and he clears the temple out, which should have told us that judgment was coming. And then last week, in his second-to-last sermon to the crowds in Matthew 23, Derek looked at uh, Jesus' uh, second-to-last sermon, which is also, in many ways, a sermon on judgment. Well, this week, we look at, according to Matthew, the last sermon of Jesus in Matthew 24, and especially Matthew 25. Jesus knows what he has come to do. He knows he's about to die. And he has one last message to preach. As a preacher, I think about what will be my last sermon. Uh, I, I don't think I'll do this. Uh, uh, what, will, what was Jesus' last sermon, though? Jesus' last sermon was on judgment. I do want to note verse chapter 24, verse 3. I included it for this reason. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. If you are here this morning and you're not sure what you think or believe about Jesus... We're so glad you're here in many ways, this sermon will be you listen overhearing Jesus talk to his followers. Uh, this is a sermon primarily directed at those who are followers of Jesus, uh, we often call Christians. Now every other week, Every week, I should say, when we come to the Lord's table after the sermon. We confess the Apostles' Creed. And I don't know what you do during that moment. Maybe you tune out. Maybe you recite it. Maybe you read it. I don't know what you do. But what I do is I try to pick out one line from the Apostles' Creed and kind of think about it as we're reading through the Apostles' Creed. Well, I'll tell you one line that I don't think a lot about as we do that. And it's the line that says this, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. I don't think about that a whole lot, if I'm honest. But it is the Christian Confession. And this statement from the history of the church, the Apostles' Creed is 1,600 or so years old, is based on the teaching of the Bible, and actually primarily, in many ways, the teaching of Jesus. One of the scholars I was reading this week uh, pointed out that there's like 148 sections of Jesus' teaching, 148 sections of Jesus' teaching, and 60 of them, 60 of them refer to judgment. Almost half of Jesus' teaching is about judgment judgment. In all of his sermons in the Gospel of Matthew, all of them end on a note of judgment and warning. I'll safe to say this uh, this proportion is not reflected in modern preaching. I'll confess to you, it is not reflected in my preaching. I was convicted by the words of one of my favorite New Testament scholars, a man named Dale Bruner, who said this, and I quote, "...the absence of the last judgment contributes to contemporary preaching's frequently noticed dullness and lack of urgency." and to its Father Christmas God, who is not even distantly related to the Holy One of Israel, not to mention the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the early church thought judgment was important. Jesus thought judgment was important. Some of the more actually thoughtful and compelling voices in contemporary culture and secular culture have important things to say about judgment. Vince Gilligan, some of you would know if you're a TV follower, Vince Gilligan created the show Breaking Bad. He was the director, producer, creator of Breaking Bad. And I'm almost certain he does not profess to be a Christian, but one of the you know great creators in Hollywood. Uh, his story Breaking Bad, if you saw that, is the story of how one ordinary person, how any ordinary person, by the way, uh, can become a murderous monster. That's the premise of Breaking Bad. It's a cinematic reflection on sin, Consequences, judgment, and even hell. Listen to, listen to Vince Gilligan in an interview with the New York Times about a decade ago. Vince Gilligan says this, I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. I believe there is some comeuppance that karma kicks in at some point, even if it takes years or decades to happen. I hate the idea of Idi Amin living in Saudi Arabia for the last 25 years of his life. That galls me to no end. I want to believe there's a heaven, but I cannot not believe there's a hell. Translating Vince Gilligan, not only do I believe in eternal judgment, I need it to be true. Jesus, the early church, even secular voices. I want to go one step further and say that you and I believe in judgment my point's a little easier to make than it was a month ago the most unifying sentiment in our world in the last two years maybe even since 9 11 or longer the most unifying sentiment has been over the last three weeks we want justice in ukraine and we want judgment for the perpetrators at some level merely speaking the name vladimir putin Unites people in a desire for judgment. Now, why is that? Because deep down in our bones, we believe that there is right and wrong. And though judgment may tarry and redemption is offered, in the end, we want there to be, need there to be, judgment. Now, to be clear, the stories that Jesus tells us today in our sermon today is not talking about judgment in this life, but talking about eternal judgment. Now, we're largely skipping Matthew chapter 24. Uh, Matthew 24 is largely about the fact of judgment. Jesus is saying judgment is a fact. It is coming. In Matthew 25, which we are looking at, is how to wait for judgment. What do you do while waiting for the judgment that is coming? We're going to have to move pretty quickly, but I have three points. They're all according to each of the three sections of Matthew 25. What do you do while waiting for God's judgment? Verses 1 to 13, you watch. Verses 14 to 30, what do you do while waiting? You invest your life well. What do you do while waiting? Thirdly, verses 31 to 46, you love the least. First and most quickly, verses 1 to 13, the verses that Beth read for us, we watch. We watch. This is a story of ten virgins who are waiting on a bridegroom who is delayed in coming. Now, I don't need to go into all the customs of a first century Jewish wedding. You more or less get what is happening here. And as Jesus tells the story, there are five wise virgins who have stored up oil and they keep it with them. And then there's five foolish, or I like the translation silly, virgins who are not prepared and don't have enough oil. All of them are having some sort of slumber party uh, and they have fallen asleep. In the middle of the night, the bridegroom finally comes. The wise rise up and they go into the wedding party. But the foolish, because they have no oil, their lamps have gone out, they have to go buy more oil. And by the time they get back, the door is shut. In verse 12, the bridegroom says, I don't know you. And they do not get into the wedding party. It is too late. Now, one thing that's interesting, we have not yet read the next two stories, but listen for this as I read them in just a moment. There is a mark of absence, the absence of the master, the bridegroom, the landlord. There's an absence of the main person within each of these stories. He's present, he goes away, and then he comes back at the end of the story. It's pretty clear what is represented. It's a connection to Jesus and God the Father. I mean, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was crucified, he rose again from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. He is absent. Jesus is absent, but he's telling his followers, I am coming back to judge the world. So watch out, be on the watch. To quote verse 13, watch therefore, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Watch, Jesus is coming back. And the only thing I want to ask about this point is this, does the reality that Jesus is returning one day, does that reality, that belief impact your day-to-day living? Jesus is coming back watch. Now, one way to watch well is to, secondly, invest your life well, which is the second point in the second section of this text. Verses 14 to 30, invest your life well. Now, I'm going to read all of these verses, but since we're going fast, I kind of want to have you have a framework in your mind. Um, it's an illustration that doesn't work on many places in the world, but it will work on the North Shore. You'll see. Uh, Because what is told here in verses 14 to 30 is, is a financial structure that is very familiar to many of you if you have any connection like to the hedge fund world or to the private equity world or know anything about it. Let me just tell you one story. 30 years ago or so, one of the hottest managers on Wall Street was a man named Julian Robertson. Julian Robertson, he founded the Tiger Fund in 1980 with $8 million. $8 million in 1980, and it topped out at $22 billion. $8 million to $22 billion, that's that's a lot of, uh, it it was closed in 2000. Apparently, Julian Robertson, by the way, professes to be a Christian. Now, along the way, one of Julian Robertson's strategies was to stake other investors with capital. And Some of the largest funds in the world today are people that he staked. They were known as, you might know, Tiger Cubs, Tiger Cubs, okay? Now, presumably, he staked them, Robertson staked these managers according to their ability. And he rewarded them when they had success with more capital, with more responsibility. Now, that's a pretty close template, actually, to the verses that I'm about to read. Now, before I read it, verses 14 to 30, let me just say this. Uh, A talent that is here mentioned is an enormous sum of money. It's equivalent to 20 years' Uh, wages. So we're talking roughly a million dollars. Okay, so one talent is roughly a million dollars. An enormous sum of money, five, two, and one. Let me read verses 14 to 30. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. It's printed in your bulletin. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be more given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, several years ago, I had a good sermon about these verses uh, by a pastor named John Pearson. Here was his outline. I'm going to use it and move quickly. Uh, First, with privilege comes responsibility. With responsibility comes rewards and consequences. And the reward is greater responsibility. First, with privileges come responsibility. Friends, there is a privilege to being a follower of Jesus, to being a part of his kingdom, a servant of God. And with that privilege comes responsibility. In the story, it's depicted as financial capital in the form of this thing called a talent. But the first and foremost talent that we possess is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is talking to his disciples, okay? What is their main talent? It is the gospel. Matthew is writing to the early church. The fundamental talent that we possess and is to be shared and invested is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest gift any of us have, and it is to be shared and invested. And all of us also have gifts and abilities given by God. And until he comes again in judgment, we are to use the gifts that he has given us in service to him, his people, and his kingdom. Now, some of us are five-talent people. Some of us are two-talent people. Some of us are one-talent people. But we all have gifts that we have been given that he expects us to use for his service. I like the category, I don't know who created it, of our time, our treasure, and our talent. Time, treasure, talent. And all of us have varying degrees of gifts in those areas. Our time our talent, and our treasure, all right? Some of us have the ability to, give, uh, to preach or to give. You have the ability to make money and give it away. You have the gift of faith, the gift of hospitality, the gift of administration, of leadership. Uh, some of you are good at reading p statements. Some of you are good at reading a text well. Some of you are good at reading a room well. Some of you have networks and professional. know There's so many different gifts that we have, and all of those are given to us by God, and he holds us responsible on how we use them. This parable is teaching that judgment is coming and we will all be held responsible for what we have been given. Okay? We'll be held responsible for what we've been given. So first, with privilege comes responsibilities. How are you doing? All right? Second, with responsibilities, though, come rewards and consequences. We're not going to dive deep here, but the guys who were given five and two, they doubled their money. And here the master's response In verses 21 and 23, they're identical. I'll just read one of them. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy, the joy of your master. The master is making this person a partner, giving them more responsibility, and then rejoicing with them. There is a joy in using the gifts that God gives us for his sake. In another place in the New Testament, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more happy, it is more joy-filled to give than to receive. And Jesus knew this because he came, his whole life was a gift. And he was full of joy and of blessing. And he wants that for us. He wants us to know the joy of giving what we've been given. And isn't this what we teach our children all along? Like, we don't teach them to be selfish, you know, hold. No, we teach them to share, to give. We've been blessed, and so we use that as a blessing. Friends, when you give a gift that God has given, it brings joy, the joy of the master. I hope you've experienced that, the joy of knowing that God has given you something, and you're able to give it back and pay it forward into someone's life. And I think this is the real rub in this story, because the third guy, the one-talent guy, he does not believe that. What distinguishes the one-talent guy from the other two? Is his view of his master what he thinks of his master? Look with me again. I'm going to read them again because they're so important. Verses 24 and 25. He would receive the one talent. Came forth, saying, "Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours." Look at his view of the master. It's one of hardness of unfairness, even dishonesty. And because of that, he is what? Quote, afraid. I mean, contrast the fear and the joy. Friends, a fundamental principle of being a human is that we will do in every circumstance what we think will make us happy. It may be long-term, it may be short-term, but we will do what makes us happy. And Jesus' contention is that the greatest joy, the greatest happiness is using what he has given us for others In the glory of his name, the joy of the master. You see, the main application for this section is not so much you thinking about how you use your time, your talents, and your treasure. That is a secondary and important application. I want you to ask yourself that. How am I using what has been given to me? But the main application is by form of a question Do you believe that God delights to give you good gifts and that as you give them and use them, you will enter into the joy of the master? Because if you believe that God delights in you, you'll be a spendthrift with what he's given to you. You will be extravagant with what he has given to you. Your time, your talents, your treasure. Because you are no. You are entering deeper and deeper into the joy of your master. It's interesting, and I'm not going to talk much about this, but the deeper the joy, uh, what is the reward for investing well? It's actually more responsibility. He takes the one talent from the one guy and gives it to the one who has ten. The reward... The reward is actually more responsibility. The more weight you feel, the more responsibility. You actually enter into more and deeper joy. I love that. Now, Jesus has not done teaching us how to live, what to do while we wait for the master to appear. Because in addition to watch and invest your life well, he has one more story to tell. This one is not a parable. This is a picture of the final judgment. And I want to tell you, That These are some of, if not the most terrifying verses in all of the New Testament for me. So let's read verses 31 to 46. The the section title is, Loving the Least. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal judgment, but the righteous into eternal life. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we know this is a reference to the Judgment Day because verse 31 depictures the Son of Man sitting on the glorious throne. In verse 32, all the nations are gathered before him. Okay? So now, I don't know what you're feeling at this moment, but stay with me. I'm actually asking you to stay with Jesus. Remember, this is the conclusion to Jesus' last sermon. I mean, after this, he drops the mic. Okay, this is his last sermon. And I want to come at this section through several questions. The first, this is the last judgment. What is the criterion by which we will be judged at the last judgment? I want you to know what it's not. The criteria we will not be judged by how we treated the people of Israel, the Jews... We will not be judged by how we obeyed God's law. We will not be judged by our missionary endeavor. We will not be judged by our knowledge of the Bible or theology. We will not be judged by our ability to preach, to teach. We will not even be judged by our ability to pray. The criterion according to Jesus for judgment is verse 40, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Verses 35 to 39 and again in 42 to 45, Jesus equates himself with the lowly and he makes people's treatment of them his criterion for judgment, which leads to the next question. I hope you're asking in your mind, who are the least of these my brothers? There's several interpretations. I take it to be the poor generally, but with a specific emphasis on the Christian poor and unfortunate. No matter what you take the interpretation to be, it is uncomfortable I don't know if I have the guts to say it myself, so I'll quote one of my favorite scholars, Peter Lightheart. Peter Lightheart says this Jesus is sending people to hell because they fail to care for the needy. Which brings us to the third question. Are Jesus and through him Matthew teaching that salvation is by works? And more specifically, is Matthew and Jesus and through him Matthew teaching that salvation is by how we treat the poor, is salvation by how we treat the poor, by works. Let me say in one word, no, salvation is not by works, and we will be judged by our works. Okay, let me flesh this out, this is super important. We are saved by grace through faith, and we will be judged by our works. Stay with me. This is why the epistle to James says, faith without works is dead. This is why the apostle Paul of all people, if you're going to memorize three verses in the Bible, memorize Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. If somebody ever asks you what is the Christian gospel, you can quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 because it says this. I'm summarizing a little bit. Ephesians 2, this is Paul writing, the great apostle of grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you're saved through faith, not a result of works. That's verse 9. By grace you've been saved, verse 8, not a result of works. That's verse 9. Verse 10 though, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is the hymn we just sang. On, uh, I just realized this on page 5. The hymn we sang right before the children's song. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. And then the last line, now freely chosen in the Son, we freely choose his ways. You see, as we love the least among us, that is proof that we have been united to Jesus. It is proof that we have received grace. The way we love the least among us is proof. It is the fruit that we have been saved. We are not saved by our works. You need to hear. You got to hear me say that you're not saved by your works, and you will be judged by your works. So the last question: How? What do we do with this? What I mean, I I was so glad after the sermon. after the first service somebody came up to me and said this is one of my favorite passages in the bible it motivates me i was like i'm glad somebody thinks like that uh they were like it motivates me like i was like you get it you understand that it's joy that motivates this this is not fear but maybe if you're with me you need to hear the next few sentences if you're feeling guilty or afraid or even angry like me maybe let how do you get back to the joy how do you get back to the joy well, let's take these two last parables and put them together. First, the last parable, the last story, look around. What are the needs around me? Notice the righteous in verses 37 to 39. They, they, Jesus says, you know, you're, you're coming to my heaven kingdom. He says, they said, when did we see you hungry and naked and in prison? And they go through the whole list. When did we see you like this? You see, they were just living with their eyes open to the needs around them. They were just living with their eyes open to the needs around them. And friends, there's needs all around you. There's needs in your pew. There's needs in your house. There's needs in our community. There's needs in our city. There's needs in our world. And part of all we got to do is open our eyes. What are the needs around you? Physical, emotional, spiritual. Watch the news. Listen to your neighbors, your children, your spouse. Look around, what are the needs around me? Just open your eyes like these righteous in verses 37, 39. But second, take the other parable, the talents. What are the abilities that God has given you? What are the time, treasure, and talents that you have to meet the needs of those around you? That's what we do with this. Because in doing this, what do we find? The joy. (laughs) The joy of the master. Years ago, outside of London... In the morning commute, the early morning commute, there was a London fog, a uh, London fog, that extreme fog that sometimes descends upon London, uh, the pea soup almost, and the hazard lights came on, ignored by most of the drivers. At 6:15 a.m., a, a semi truck carrying huge rolls of paper was involved in an accident, and within minutes, the highway was engulfed in carnage. Dozens of cars were wrecked. By the end of the morning, ten people would be dead. The first two police officers that arrived, they knew there was trouble, so they ran back up the highway to stop the oncoming traffic. They waved their arms. They shouted as loud as they could. Most drivers took no notice, and they, the officers, were left to wait for the sickening sound of impact as they hit the growing mass of wreckage. And so as a last desperate measure, the policemen began picking up those orange traffic cones and throwing them at the car's windshields to get them to slow down. You see, friends, Jesus' words in Matthew 25 are like those cones being thrown at our windshield. Jesus is saying, judgment, it's real. It's, I did not even go into all the stuff he says about hell. I mean, did, verse 30, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 41, eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 45, eternal punishment. You see, friends, in love, Jesus is throwing cones at our windshield, and he's saying, watch, invest your life well, and love the least among you. But friends, Jesus' love goes beyond his words. His love goes beyond what he says, because I didn't stop the text, did I, at the end of verse 25. Look at the conclusion of the sermon, the first two verses of chapter 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, when he had finished his preaching career, he drops the mic, then he says to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. You see, after preaching a sermon on judgment, Jesus moves towards judgment. And this, friends, is the scandal of Christianity. The one who judged and is the judge will be judged himself. He enters into the judgment. Because two days after preaching this sermon, Jesus would hang on a cross, judge for your sins and mine, the sins of the world. He entered into his own sermon. I mean, just think back through the sermon. Uh, in verse 12, he had said that he... Um, The master does not even know the the, the five virgins. Jesus entered into that anonymity, that cut-offness from the Father. In verse 30 of his sermon, he said he was cast into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of feet. Jesus experienced that, and he experienced the punishment of verse 46. In short, Jesus preached a sermon on judgment, and then he went and entered into that judgment. You know that phrase in the Apostles' Creed. It's actually the phrase that Nick and I get asked the most about. That Jesus descended into hell. This is what is in view. That Jesus entered the judgment. He experienced the horrors of hell. And why? Because he loves us. Let me read the most famous verses in the New Testament on judgment. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. I have just two things to say in closing to two different groups of people. First, if you are outside of Jesus, you're not sure what you think of Jesus, and you hear all this talk about judgment and hell, it's, it's heavy. And maybe you believe it, maybe you're with Vince Gill, you believe that hell is a real thing, that judgment is real. Salvation is on offer. Believing in the name of Jesus, Jesus came to be judged so that we did not have to experience the judgment. He came, He lived, He died. He was judged. As we believe upon him, the free offer of the gospel is ours. But also for those of you who are followers of Jesus, know this. He was judged so that we might live, so that we might love, so that we might invest our lives well. And as we know more of his love for us, and as we give that love more and more out, friends, we can enter into the joy the joy of our master. Pray with me. Our great God, I know I wouldn't have chosen these to be my last words from a sermon, but in your great wisdom and even your great love, you chose this. You wanted us to hear this. You knew that we needed to hear this. And so, God, I pray that we would lean further and further, deeper and deeper into you and your love for us, that gave yourself, judged for the sins of the world, that we might have life, even life eternal. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.